Hey, how's it going? This is John from Battles, and you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Thanks for having me. Well, it's it's so it's so it's grand. It's grand that you're here. It's so grand. <laughs> it's grand. And um, we're we're here. We're going to be talking about your your collection of short stories, um, Rainbow Rainbow today. And but to start us off, thanks for picking today's songs. Could you tell us a little bit about what we just heard, Lydia? Oh sure. So it's um, that was a song by my friend's band. It's called You Won't. And they were my friends from high school, um, and I'm their biggest fan. And I love their music so much. So they they did break up, but I still faithfully listen to them all the time. From from high school. Yeah. yeah. They they the band was after high school, but they're my friends from oh. high school, and we both we all were in the drama department together. So all my I'm still close with all those friends. And we all went into various different arts professions and we stay close. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of heartwarming. And, and so when when they're on stage, too, are they like, and now for a story from Rainbow Rainbow? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they one time put the title of one of my comics in their song as like an Easter egg. So that was fun. Which which one can you can you tell yeah, which which comic was in the song? It wasn't that song. It was a different song, but it was a com- my first comic that I ever did, which was called Middle of the Ocean. Yeah. Is that the one with the turtles, Lydia? No, it's no. it's about a young girl who decides to marry her dog, but she has to go up and do it in the middle of the ocean because no one will accept them on land. <laughs> the dog. <laughs> what a brilliant idea, though. That's, I um, well, well, Lydia. Before we get going too too far into things. Um, again, thanks for picking today's music, and we have, I think, we have more one more from the friends band ahead 
Yes, maybe on the list. We do, yeah. So, okay. Um, but here's the bio without further ado. Lydia Conklin has received a Stegner Fellowship, a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writer's Award, three Pushcart Prizes, a Creative Writing Fulbright in Poland, a grant from the Elizabeth George Foundation, scholarships from Breadloaf, and fellowships from Emory, McDowell, Yaddo, Hedgebrook. Did, I should have asked you how to pronounce oh, this one. Jurassic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to tell us about that. I don't, and elsewhere. Their fiction has appeared in Tin House, American Short Fiction, and the Paris Review. They've drawn comics for The New Yorker, The Believer, Lenny Letter, and elsewhere. So what was it like at Jurassic? <laughs> well, it's, it's a beautiful residency in California, and... I, my favorite thing that happened there was there was a family of weasels living outside of my studio. So I saw six baby weasels and, and the parent weasels almost every day. And I love weasels. They're like my special animal. So it was such a dream. Really? Is that, I wondered if they were the inspiration for the ferrets in the short, or no, well, the short one of your stories. Actually, those that fer, those ferrets were inspired by my actual ferrets that I had in fourth grade, but... <laughs> that totally makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. But I do they are connected. They're connected to the weasel phenomenon of my life. I mean it must be, right? But then you're connecting to like the the great outdoors, like nature seeing the the weasels. Wow. And so it seems also it struck me, Lydia, that um you've been working like when I was reading the list of um the the awards and where you've been writing and working this has been like you've been doing this for for a while and in um and supported too which is wonderful like i can uh yeah it's and so maybe could we jump in the time machine and think about when you were like starting to 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 draw and to write, and you mentioned already that you had a really good group of friends in high school, and everybody kind of loved, were artsy or so. And yeah, you, what was it? What was it like for you as young Lydia, um, and starting to, I don't know, draw or write or what was it like? Well, I did always. Yeah, I started pretty young. Like I remember before I could write my I would sort of draw the pictures and then my mom would write would I would dictate to my mom like the story like um and then yeah I did start comics as a kid like I had a comic in seventh grade called the grim tree about a mad mean tree that was grouchy um is it the opposite <laughs> of the giving tree where you, did you read that oh, book and yeah. you were like no I have another story to tell <laughs> no it wasn't inspired by that but I didn't even think about that I just thought it was funny to have a tree character because they can't really do much you know, it's just like they're just stuck there. But was that better for drawing? It was fun to draw. I do yeah. like drawing trees. I like the texture. Yeah, and then I had this I had this um drama teacher who was really amazing in high school and I think he drew all these cool people and we we would write plays together and and do them at the drama festival and that was an amazing I don't collaborate much now I pretty much work alone but it was amazing to like establish those friendships through that art at the time and was that your because it sounds like then from before you could 
even write. You were kind of working with stories, making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I always have been obsessed with stories. Yeah, even just like having a plastic animals and telling a story alone. I don't know. I just, yeah, I've always loved that storytelling in different ways. In what different way? Like, do you mean like drawing and mm, yeah, and the drawing, plays or writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the plays, the drawing, writing, you know, um, talent, just playing as a child, make believe even and whatnot. Right. Like I don't, I don't know. Like I just, I just have always loved narrative, I guess. And it seems like this, this, the worlds of each of these short stories. Um, I, I feel like there's a way when you're when I'm reading them, uh, you're I'm like that the world is vivid and um, this is going to sound strange, but I'm plonked down into this world oh, <laughs> and it good. feels right, right, yeah. and um, and I'm wondering if part of that might be um, the way the imagination is working when you're writing it too, when you're drafting one of the stories and are you working maybe more from the visual? Mm, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, it's important for me to, to have the, the story be fully embodied, which is maybe what you're responding to, or at least that's my goal. Like, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just, a better way of phrasing it. Thank yeah. you, Lydia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not plonked down. No, I like plonked down. <laughs> I like plonked down very much. Yeah. I just think, yeah, since a lot of the stories too are about like gender, sexuality, the body and stuff, it's like the body, the embodied experience of living and being in the world is very important to me. And I don't respond very well to stories that kind of take place in a vacuum or where like you can't feel the character's like physical experience of the world. It's hard for me to like inhabit those stories when I'm reading them. So it's an it's an important goal. It's it's hard. Like it takes a lot of work. It doesn't always come easily, but I do. That's a goal for sure. Could you say more about that, Lydia? Does that like the part when you said it's hard work to make that the yeah. physicality of the world come into the the prose? Right. Yeah. I was just talking to my students about that because I think especially in first drafts, you have like so much of the story is in your head you don't put it all on the page because it's like you're filling in the gaps in your mind and then later when readers are like I couldn't really see this or I don't understand this motivation or there's like gaps and they point out and then you realize you have to like flesh out the world more and more and with the senses how because it feels to me like many of the the characters are because the physicality of it, which, okay, what I think is so interesting is that when I first think of the stories, I think of interiority in a mm. lot of ways because of, we're in the character's perspective so deeply and we're seeing it from through their eyes and their mind, their thoughts. Um, but the physicality is so present because each of the characters seems to be like um, either physically bumping up against the world or like the the scene like a sweat or or like there was one scene that I feel like where a mask was taken off and the character knew they had already had blackheads for me <laughs> in that yeah. short time I feel like that was in 
Um, it might be in Pink Knives. I think Boy Jump. Oh, it was in Boy, Boy Jump. Jump. It was in Boy yeah. Jump, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. You can't have a map of every f- image in your mind, right? I know. I was thinking, oh, Pink Knives has the most masks, but I forgot Boy Jump had oh, masks. Oh, yeah. In it too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I guess just thinking about the. F- I feel like your use of the physical um, and how it's just right uh, abutting like these interior moments of the characters. It's just such an it's a great blend because it it feels. um, I don't know, like like the like the lived experience (laughs) more than something that is abstracted. Oh, that's so... Yeah, yeah I, I think they're both... Because, yeah, the interiority is also, like, a big project for me is, like, trying to make... I, I feel like early in my writing life, it was hard to get a balance of, like, not too much interiority that it feels stifling, but enough so you feel close to the characters. And then after I kind of felt like I got a handle on that formula or combination, it was, like how do you now make the interiority like actually propulsive in its own kind of way rather than like just static because I feel like propulsive interiority is kind of like the the trick of plot because you can have a plot full of like so many weird dramatic things happening but like if we don't care about how it's affecting the characters like inner lives it's like it means nothing whatsoever so yeah, that that's been a big project of mine too. It, when you when you think about your writing, is Lydia, is it when you uh, is it project driven? Like, where is it that each of the the things that you're you're um, I don't know adding to your your writing toolbox or arsenal or so? Do you? It seems like it's so you're so self-aware of developing them, too. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it's like I I feel like I'll hit a wall with something. And then it it also ties into my pedagogy because I'm a teacher. So like like with the propulsive interiority, like I was teaching the MFA students at Vanderbilt last semester. And I was like, I'm going to structure this workshop around the idea of propulsive interiority. And so we read three novels that I feel like do it really well and tried to pick them apart and see like, how are these authors achieving this? And so when I have like a craft issue I'm struggling with, I like to bring it to the classroom and like talk about it with my students. And then I don't know. So yeah, it it does become like, okay, there are these specific things I want to work on that I focus my attention on or try to read books that do those things well and think about it in depth and that kind of thing. And is it something like where you're looking at a draft you have that you're interested in and that you find that that's maybe something that's happening and you want to deepen it because like it's in your own work, you said. Mm, Yeah. And then looking to the the writers that you feel like, oh, I've seen this done. I, I can connect it to this. Totally. Yeah, totally. Which novels did you choose for this particular um, like a MFA class? Well, so we read the first one we read was Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates, which is one of the novels I read the most because I feel like it has 
a very dreary plot if you look at the actual plot it's just like a man in an in like an advertising office and whatnot and like very just suburban straight white middle class plot but then it's so propulsive because the way he writes the interiority it's just like alive and dynamic and you just want it just pulls you through and then the second novel we read was the school for good mothers by jasmine chan which came out this past year and I wanted to look at that one for specifically how she handles emotional stakes because the emotional stakes in that novel are so high and you care so much about what sort of, it's basically about a mom who gets separated from her child and she just makes you care so deeply that it pulls you through in that way in the longing. And then the last novel we read was A Separation by Katie Kitamura, which is another novel. Do you know that one? Yes. yes. I love that novel so much. And she's coming to Vanderbilt next week, so I'm so excited. But it just it's also very simple plot wise, but the interiority of the character is so fascinating. And it's, she's kind of like a weird person who's, who reacts differently than you might expect. And just the way she thinks about things is so compelling that it just pulls you through on that strength so yeah those were the three we looked at and listening to you talk about this Lydia I feel like oh I can see how this is working at work in your short stories you know because we're talking about novels but I can see how that's that's at work too let's take a short break and then we'll come back today on living writers Lydia Conklin is here rainbow rainbow out with catapult press I'm T Hetzel we'll be back Where I chase you, you chase 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us and tuning in now, you're just in time because today Lydia Conklin is here on Living Writers with her book of stories, Rainbow Rainbow. I get when I look at your cover, Lydia, it's I love it. It's like mesmerizing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's it's very um it's very groovy or <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I thought it was a, a lot of little children are very drawn to it and I recently saw someone has an Instagram account where they're letting their four-year-old pick every book they read for a year and this was the first one that the child picked and I was like that makes so much sense it totally does (laughs) was that strategic Lydia the yeah the, the cover yeah no I wasn't trying to draw children I just wanted to have it be like the most colorful I wanted it to stand out and I wanted it to be super colorful and not be like in on trend in any cover way i wanted it to be its own thing i feel like this is timeless definitely definitely timeless and if i didn't if i didn't know you were the i would be like i want this book too before we get too far away from the song tell us about because thanks for picking the the music for today's program lydia what did we just hear oh so that song was trampoline by you won't who is my i was talking about them earlier but they're my friend's band for for my friends i went to high school with and i just I love that song. It's probably one of my favorite songs because I love how it sounds like a love song if you listen to it, but it's actually about two collaborators, these two band members and their like collaborative relationship and that's like so heartbreaking. I don't know. I just I just think the whole relationship of collaborators is one that really interests me. So I think that song fits into the genre. And why? Can you say more about that? Because it seems present in the stories, too. Yeah, I think it's it's one. Uh, this book, or, or fellow yeah. artists. I don't yeah. know if they're collaborating on projects, but artists together. But so, True. So- yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I'm very interested in like the ethics around art making, which doesn't make its way a lot into this book. But my next two books that I'm kind of working on, it really is a major theme. So. And yeah, I just I just think I think relationships, sort of unusual relationships fascinate me. So such as like, you know, there's a nibbling and and an aunt slash, you know, person relationship in here, for example, or like, um, I don't know, like co-worker relationship or or friends or, you know, like sort of relationships that aren't necessarily romantic relationships or like a sperm donor and like mother relationship or something that that is in here as well um but yeah so collaborators is another one like that and I think I'm just interested in in those odd relationships and how we navigate them you know collaborators can be as intimate as you know people in a relationship but it's it's not a relationship that has a roadmap as much out there 
because ideas are so intimate. Yeah. So if you're collaborating within the world of ideas or with the end to create something. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. And it's like, how do you maintain an intimacy interpersonally when you need someone for your art? It's like, it's just hard. It's hard. I'm glad that I work alone, honestly, but I'm fascinated by my friends who don't, who have to rely on other people. So yeah, it just, it does fascinate me. What, what's it like for your process with working alone, Lydia? Like what you've got, you've just mentioned there's two books coming, but what was, what was it like creating, maybe let's go with Rainbow Rainbow. Mm. What was it like making this book of stories and how many stories are you you making and which one Mm. are the ones that become part of this collection that kind of group together with the because rainbow is in every single story yeah (laughs) yeah it's true yeah and I shouldn't say I did it alone because you know so many people read my work and friends and colleagues and whatnot professors through the years and like gave me feedback on the stories that I would not have been able to make them as they were without them and you know my amazing editor Lee Newman whose story collection also came out this year which I love called Nobody Gets Out Alive and you know my agent Samantha Shane just many people helped me get it through so it's not like it was alone but it's like me creating kind of the material at least on my own so yeah I had so many stories oh my god I can't even tell you how many I had because it would be grim to say but I also don't know but it's a very high number but yeah it was a hard job to kind of decide which 10 got into the book in the end it it took a, a long process how did you decide then? Like, how did these 10, did you choose them because they had like a relationship with each other, <laughs> sort of like <laughs> collaborators in a loose sense Yeah, towards the vision? Or yeah, how did you choose these 10? Yeah, well, it, the first thing I was doing was I was like, I want them all to have like queer protagonists. Like, so yes. that was huge. Like, because I have stories where like, the queer there's queer characters but they're not the protagonists and I have stories where like the character is queer in a less sort of obvious way and I thought a couple of those could get in but in the end it was like no I wanted to be more straightforwardly queer um yeah and for this project anyway because why does that why does that why did that matter to you for this project now um just because that's a big project of the of the book is queerness and how politics around queerness have changed and how that presses upon characters you know some of the stories are set in like the 90s and some are set one is set right after trump was elected and how has queerness changed around there around that and or like in poland yeah yeah. geographic so all those things um so yeah so i just wanted to be more to have that message be more sharpened in the collection and and maybe also um, because we just we need more queer protagonists yeah. <laughs> out there. <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So I, I did want to have this also be a book that was trying to show like how queer narratives didn't have to be these sort of cookie cutter narratives like, oh, coming out stories right. or someone commits suicide at the end. It's just like I wanted them to be like more nuanced representations of queer life that were more reflecting my own 
life as well. What you can know to be true, right? Yeah. Experiences and of, of others and that are you're close to. Yeah, because the middle school one. Mm-hmm. Um, the black winter of New England. Or, the, or ooh, the suburbs. Actually, I meant, I, meant the, um, I meant the black winter of New England. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why is middle school like a good, <laughs> um, a fertile ground for, for some of the stories that you've been writing and two of two of them make it into rainbow rainbow yeah i don't know i think that was a time in my life when so much happened around awareness of sexuality and my friends were starting to have uh, me and my friends were starting to have like sexual experiences and like it was a dark time and strange things happened and i'm really not connected to anyone that i was friends with at the time although actually one of my best friends from the time reemerged when my book came out, which was cool. But yeah, I feel like I was trying to struggle with all the things that happened at that time. And I kind of wasn't, was having to think it through alone because I didn't have anyone to talk about it with. So it ended up working it out through writing. And how long were these, the, the stories in the making? Like for, cause you said you have hundreds of stories <laughs> Didn't, not like, hundred, not hundred, but, but a lot. Yeah, a lot. How long have you been at work on like Rainbow Rainbow as the the project? Um, I think the first, I think the most elderly story in that collection I started in in two thousand ten. So twelve years or so it took. But I wasn't working solely on this book in that time. Right. It sounds like if you have two other books that are sort of on the horizon, yeah. you're able to work across the the projects. And are those other um, books novels or are they also short stories or? They're novels, but I also have more short stories I've written since that like weren't ready to make it into this collection, but I can continue to work on and whatnot. So I have some of those too. When, um, when do you know if a story is ready because short Mm. stories as a form are super intense. Yeah. I think, (laughs) um, super intense. Yeah. I, I think for me, I never feel it's ready. Honestly, I don't know. Like I basically at some point I'm like, it's done enough. People have read it, given me feedback. I've done my due diligence trying to make it better. I feel like it's decent, but it's not done. Then I'll submit it to magazines. Then if some magazine accepts it, I'll be like, all right, it's out of my hands for the moment until it goes to a book if it ever does. Um, But yeah, that's the only way I basically let someone else decide because I I would be perfecting it until I died otherwise. And I just got to let it off my plate so I can make room for other stuff. Right, right. And when you so let's say you send it off, it gets accepted into a magazine. And then do you feel like that's that really is itself? Because then you had that caveat where you said, but I might revisit it if it's going into then a book. Yeah. So like there are stories in here that were in magazines and then I made major changes to them for the book. So, yeah, it's truly, I guess, the book is the final destination. But many, many of the stories will never be in a book, so they'll just have to die in the magazine if they even make it into it. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back with more from Lydia Conklin and her stories that are alive from Rainbow Rainbow. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers, and we'll be back. (laughs) 
Welcome back. You've got Living Raiders on WCBN FM and Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Lydia Conklin is here. Her book of stories, Rainbow, Rainbow with Catapult. Um, so right before the break, we were talking about um, how some stories go to magazines and then that's when you know they're finished yeah. <laughs> um, for a while until you think about them being in a book. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And and you mentioned that some of the stories were like a major revisions happened because they were themselves for a while in the, the magazine and they were static. How do you know, like, when does that happen for you with a story where you think, nope, the story is it's open again before it goes into the book? I think just part of it is just the actual mandate that oh it's going to be published again and you have a chance to revise it just opens up the question to me so probably almost any story but but yeah like some of the stories like pioneer i don't think it changed too much from the magazine to the book but then like the black winter of new england like we with my editor we ended up cutting like the whole last four pages of the whole story so it was like That's pretty extreme significant why yeah so why did yeah well it's funny because I struggled with that story so much and I struggled with the ending so much and 
then one day my editor was like, I just cut out the last four pages. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. It was so much better. It was so much better. But I never even considered that I could just cut the end. I just was struggling with it for 10 years instead. So it was very, very helpful. And like, um, I'm where, trying to think. Yeah. Where does it, where does it end now, Lydia? And Let's see. Let's see. What's the... It ends... So this is the Black Winter of New England, the second story. Yeah, so basically, I can read the last paragraph. Basically, it used to have this whole part where, like, the rat was coming out and everybody was talking to the rat. And then there was this whole sort of altercation between Melissa and Hazel and then Hazel left the party and then they had this whole other conversation on the stoop and then Hazel went and walked to the middle school and sat in the parking lot and it was just like long but it did end on the same paragraph which I could read if you want okay yeah okay I'll read the last paragraph because the paragraph was the same so this is the story was about a middle schooler who goes to this New Year's party and has kind of all these sexual kind of revelations. And then it ends um, like this. Outside the window, potassium lamps bake the snow in lukewarm light. As Raddy's tail unravels out of Hazel's cuff, as Esther and Anthony suck in breath, Hazel clings tighter to Melissa's wrist, pulling it toward her chest. She concentrates on a distant sound, far beyond Esther's apartment, someone singing, miles away. The voices of people she doesn't know yet, their heads tipped to the sky, yelling for the next year and all to come after that. So it did end on that same note of 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 thinking she could hear the voices, but um, it was in a parking lot and many other extraneous things had come to pass in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. Because it feels like in a short story, maybe cutting out like the direct confrontation with Melissa and Hazel, because Hazel's our main protagonist um, for this story. Maybe that just has it there as a, um, you know, how how that energy is still in the story, mm-hmm. but it doesn't come to pass. So it's all in that moment where um, Hazel clings tighter to Melissa's wrist is more even intense, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Because it, it, yeah, I think the t- tension got diffused with, there was just so much going on with the wrist. It was like a little unnecessary. Um, yeah. So I think, and I think then Ratty almost dies and people were stressed. And it was just like, this is just too much, my God. So I just kind of, my editor had cut a lot of it out. And it's it's interesting to have people like an editor or or readers that you can really trust, isn't it, Lydia? Oh, yeah, it's a dream situation. It's very hard to find someone who not only you can trust them, but that they won't bullshit you. Like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I messed up. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Oopsie. Um, We're and, sorry, everyone. Yeah, sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just basically like, you know, my my ex who was also a writer who I did for nine years, like we could tell each other the truth without going into like a lot of, Oh, it's so great. Blah, blah, blah. Like, um, we could just be like, this needs to be fixed because of this blah, blah, blah. And we trusted each other. And then I was lucky enough to find that relationship again with my editor for this book because Lee, um, 
Lee Newman just was able to tell me, like on our very first meeting, she was like, I can tell you don't need a lot of, you know, fluffing up and this. I'm just going to tell you what I think you need to do and what, what you could work on. And she pointed out a few things. And I was like, she can see right through me. Like she sees my tricks. She sees where I'm like you know, phoning it in and whatnot, and she's going to fix it. So I was so won over by that. And that was the approach that she had, which I so much appreciate. And when you say, like, she can fix it, is it something where she'll say, this is what's happening? Take a look. Like, what do you think? Or does she sometimes like this one? It sounds like she had a a big suggestion. <laughs> like, yeah. Take all of this out, leave the, and then bring the last paragraph back. I actually had the idea of the last paragraph, oh, saving nice. the last paragraph. Yeah. yeah, but she, yeah, she, sometimes it would be like that. Like in one scene, um, I don't know if I can even say it on the air. It's not, anyways. Oh, it, oh okay. Yeah, I won't say it explicitly, but there's one scene toward the end of Cheerful Until Next Time. If you read the book, you'll see what I mean, but it's an encounter. And she was like, just extend it extend it make it like eight pages long and I was like okay so I like wrote this long scene of this encounter of this like romantic encounter not really romantic but you know so then (laughs) she went back to it and she was like I gotta she basically was like I tricked you to write all this so I could then pick and choose the best parts so sometimes it would be something like that where it's kind of like a collaborative process in a way collaborate I guess I do collaborate (laughs) that's what I'm learning on the radio (laughs) yeah well and you've also used the word it's interesting to think about the word trick you know, like, because you've used it to say that you trick yourself and that she, what's that as a writer? How do you use that for oh your making? I need to be tricking myself day in and day out, honestly. It's like one of the main processes I have because it's like, yeah, if you're writing something and you're actually thinking like any of the true things about what will happen to it, like people I love and respect will read this. They'll probably intuit these things about my private life. Like this probably will never finish this piece because a lot of the things I write never even get finished. Like it would be too depressing and it would be on one hand too depressing and on the other hand too terrifying to go forward. So I just have to be like, not think about that. Just trick myself that either like on the one hand it will be published and read and successful and on the other hand no one will ever read this when reality probably neither is true. I don't know. It's just like a big trick. It's just a whole bunch of tricks to sort of make yourself push through. Yeah. And it's part of that also, um, not, not a trick so much as, um, well, maybe it is a kind of, well, the, where you decide, um, like when you're gonna, when you're gonna write or like, do you have habits that you, (laughs) um, try to, um, develop so that it almost is a compulsion, um, as well as, work or I don't I don't know yeah I do yeah I have like I feel like a lot of people struggled with attention span during COVID and whatnot and I did too and I sort of started doing the Pomodoro method where I like write for 25 minutes and then take a break and so yeah it's like a reward system kind of tricking where it's like oh in 25 minutes I'll 
And even anything can sound like an reward. Like going to the bathroom. No, just kidding. No, really. Like even like, oh, get to water my plants or I'll get to do my dishes. Woo. Like I'll have a break to do something actual physical that's not as brutally hard as writing. Yeah. Is it so? But you also must love it. I do. Yeah, I love it. But it's like some days are brutal. Some days are amazing and some are hard. So just, yeah, it depends on the day, really. Yeah. And I, um, I don't know. It, it's interesting to think about, um, what, I don't know. Have you ever had any, um, like laps, like lots of time passes between when you're, I don't know, maybe making yourself right or, or so, or, or are you pretty good about each day? I'm pretty good, but I do, because for me, it's like if I take a day off, it can sometimes take two weeks to get back in somehow. So, like, I know I'm sometimes jealous of people who, like, will will just write for a couple of months out of the year and write something, but I don't know if I could do that. I feel like I need to at least be practicing, even if what I'm writing isn't going to come to anything. But, yeah, some days, especially now that I have more of a full-time job with a lot more responsibilities is like some days I only have a couple hours at the most so yeah I don't always have like a full immersive day of writing but I try to do at least a little bit every day even if it's just 25 minutes to an hour or something because that matters yeah. like having the time and and do you find a, a difference like are you um are you also working from notebooks, Lydia, or are you kind of, do you like working from a screen or anything uh, like I in the process of it that matters to you or anything as long I, as you get a 20, 20 minutes or whatever? I do, yeah, I don't do notebooks, but I my one strange thing on process is I do walk while I write. I have a treadmill desk and so I walk and write. So that's a bit strange. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Do you think better when you're walking, when you're moving? A hundred percent. And like, like a little while ago, I was feeling great and I had to sit down and I'm like, I just feel like my brain is fuzzy when I'm sitting. It's weird, but I'm just like very restless person. So it's an, it's just my personality type. And, and you know that you can use it for good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Let's take a short break and we'll be back today on Living Writers. Lydia Conklin is here in the studio. Um, That's right, folks. We've got a live one. Um, Rainbow, Rainbow, the book of stories out with Catapult. We'll be back. When I said we...
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Lydia Conklin is here. Uh, their book of stories, Rainbow, Rainbow. Um, and we just had part of Ani DeFranco. We didn't get to hear her sing, I don't yeah, think so. Yeah, I know. I forgot it, it had that long interlude. Long... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Lydia and I were just talking about how um, Ani's one of both of our <laughs> favorites. Have you have you seen Ani in concert or shows, Lydia? Or I did. I saw her once in like seventh or eighth grade, and I saw her once in grad school. Yeah, and my friend knows her, and I'm just like, please, can I meet her one day? It's like my dream. (laughs) (laughs) You have to tell me if that happens, okay? Promise. (laughs) (laughs) I know everybody. My 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 friends, if they're listening, are rolling their eyes and being like, okay, fangirl. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. back it, take it down a notch. Um, But yeah, and I'm also a fangirl of Rainbow Rainbow. I I. Yeah, I love this book. I love just also, yeah, it's just a a book of short stories. There's nothing like it in the world. There's just something that um, feels like it's going to give you these portals in these intense doses and you get more than one portal. Now I sound like maybe I have a problem. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I'm identifying now with one of the characters in, um, let's see. Well, actually, let's read. Let's hear. Let's hear more. Lydia, take us somewhere in Rainbow Rainbow. Okay, I'll read from the beginning of Pioneer. The Oregon Trail ran from the back entrance of Bridge Elementary down through the schoolyard to the edge of the woods. Cones marked the journey. Not the satisfying soft cones that squish down with your body weight, but hard plastic cones, prim and pointed as shark teeth. The cones looped around the tree line to the right, and that's all Coco and the rest of the Culver family could see from the starting point. Who knew where the trail went after that? There were dangers Coco had heard, though she didn't know exactly what. When Miss Harper had passed out the simulation's rainbow-coated biography cards last week, Coco had not been assigned to the Culver family. Her lemon-yellow card listed her as the matriarch of the Bell family, who had lived right here in historic Lexington, Massachusetts. While the class wandered around collecting their families, Coco asked Devon, the Bell Patriarch, if she could be a child in the Bell family instead. We already have two children, Devon said, and there can't be children without a matriarch. Sure there can, said Coco. The matriarch could have died. They'd make up some woman who'd long since perished, recalling her benevolence could pass the time on the trail. You want to be dead, asked Devon. No, Coco said. I just don't want to be the bell matriarch. I want to be a bell child. Why? Coco wouldn't say so to Devon, but she was uneasy in dresses and skirts. The wind could catch the fabric and expose the part of her she hated most that felt so wrong and that she pretended had withered off her. In the role of a child, she'd be an 1800s tomboy. As matriarch, there was no option. She'd have to look like a full woman. I'll stop there. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Lydia. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So could could you tell us a little bit about, um, like, what you love about Coco? Oh, well, Coco is very much like me when I was that age. So I very much identify with being in that. I even, like, so basically in the story, Coco decides to dress up as an ox instead of a person for the Oregon Trail so that they can, I'm going to say they, even though it's she in the story, um, 
so that they can sort of get around gender in this pageant. Um, and that's like exactly what I did. And I thought, oh, I'll be like more inconspicuous if I'm an ox. But instead, of course, it drew so much derision and mockery from everybody else in the pageant. So yeah, it, it just was like, I, I wanted to choose that moment to write about because I felt like it was a moment when a, a child couldn't choose to like opt out of gender in the ways that sometimes like, oh, even if you're a girl or perceived as a girl, you can still wear shorts and have short hair and whatnot. And like, it's not like an olden days where you had to be dressed very much to mark your gender. But then when they do this Oregon Trail reenactment, it's like a moment where the choice has to be made. And it seems so important to even that the that Coco has the wits about themselves to be able to find this creative way to, um, like you said, op- opt out or somehow sidestep it, but mm-hmm. still be present yeah. in the scene, right? And I love that the title is Pioneer. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Cause, cause you know, that's like, I think about, um, how I don't, I don't like how many young people are able to be more pioneering, even open to using different pronouns instead of being so, um, inflexible about totally. it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, and that's something I also explore in Sunny Talks to another story, which it's just about how it was so moving and interesting to me that the younger generation was able to like create this discourse that like my generation didn't even have words for and it's so moving and exciting and also kind of gaslighting in a way just to see like things change so quickly when they were so horrible before so yeah i i'm very interested in writing about that as well and and it feels like um in a way so closely with such close attention and and tenderness mm-hmm. too oh, thanks so that I, it feels like then the kind of going back to what we started with earlier in the the show the episode where you said it's it's not just one or two stories that are being told cuz that's not the stories that are being lived right Exactly. Yeah. It's like there's so many experiences that maybe did not make their way into media until recently because it was like, oh, straight cishet people want to hear this one story. This is comfortable for them to hear. It's like, oh, this queer person is so sad and blah, blah, blah or whatever. Or they came out and they never talked about it again. And it was just grand. But I don't know. Like, so I just kind of wanted to like push against those narratives that have been accepted by the sort of more mainstream media and be like, no, there's many, many narratives out there. I think one of the narratives that's coming, keeps coming back into my head. Can you help me with the character, Lydia? Maybe it's the, the character who is um, going to, it feels like they don't, they don't want their their curves to be maybe it's in the poll is it in boy jump yeah is it okay i think it is it's, yeah and because it's something about how the um um the daisy's partner um would want to feel their curves yeah but daisy doesn't want that yeah that's a hard thing yeah 
Yeah, I think that that is that is something that like trans people have to deal with is like if you're in a relationship, it's like the person loves you for who you are, which is wonderful. But kind of if, in the moment, and that, who you seem to be in that moment, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's like not necessarily who you want to be. But then, yeah, you wouldn't want someone not to love you for who you are. But yeah, that's just a hard thing. That's a hard thing. And it feels so like so nuanced and complicated, right? Mm-hmm. These are these are that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um uh and I feel like it's also in the story Pink Knives. Um I think because um the person is going to have top surgery. Mm-hmm. Um and their current partner would love to be with them physically in um many ways but then they are not doing that because they're going to be (laughs) i think the therapist says no don't be together and um sorry i'm speaking in fragments (laughs) (laughs) the mysterious living writers show we have (laughs) lots of ellipses (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah i just well i think what i'm kind of going towards is that it's it's so um important to have these these stories where it's not the main focus it's not the main plot point too it's just part of the person's life it's Mm -hmm. like a and it's not that it's a side note because I don't mean to say that it's not important those are huge things that the person is grappling with yeah but it's not the main part of the story does that make sense and so that's what makes it feel real yeah. To me, I guess. Yeah, totally. It's just like, yeah, people, queer, trans people aren't just walking around thinking only about that fact right. about themselves all the time, which is maybe what, you know, straight says how people might think is going on. But yeah, it's like, no, it's, I'm sorry, but there's many nuances and complications um, out there. So yeah, I like to have that be, be represented as well. Let's take a, we have like such a short time left together, Lydia. I wanted to say how powerful I found each of your, your last sentences of each of the stories. Oh, thanks. Is that something like where you feel like you found this moment? Or do you have a moment like that? Like Amy Hempel, who sometimes says she writes to get to this line, or is it something you find? I usually find it and I find endings hard. So I love them, but I find them hard. So yeah, I think it's something that has to be that I have to find. I don't know it in advance. That's what do you, what does that give you? Do you think? Um, it's yeah, it's like the journey. I feel like I have to be on the journey too when I'm writing it or it will be very dead in the water. So I want it to stay alive like it would be for the reader when I'm writing it. So it would feel alive for them when they're reading it. Very much. (laughs) Very much alive. Well, I I guess we have to end now, Lydia. Thank you so much for having me on Living Writers. (laughs) It's so fun. Thank you for being here. What a dream. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, And thanks for putting rainbow in every story. Yeah, I love rainbows. (laughs) (laughs) Today on Living Writers, Lydia Conklin, her book, Rainbow, Rainbow, Book of Stories, out with Catapult. Um, Thanks so much to Frank Uli. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Thank you, Lydia. Thank you. (laughs) Keep you around to keep me honest. Around to keep me clean. Shining fluorescent. You said as long as you feel alive.
getting out of bed each day is long as long as you're doing your best but what if this is not my best what if this is not my best whoa Having a bit of technical difficulties right after that last interview, so just hold on for one second. I said, You hold this isthmus in your hands. It's the only place I can land I am a prop airplane You said as long as you're showing up on time As long as they believe that you're really smiling As long as you're doing your do better 